Luke 8, verses 1 to 15. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, And the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your word this morning, it's it's good to be on this passage because we bring it up to you often in our prayers. And as we have prayed so often, so we pray again that our hearts would be like that good ground, that rich and fertile soil that may receive the seed of your word, absorb it, and by it bear fruit with patience. Lord, we pray that from our lives individually, as families and households, and as one church, we pray that you would have a a hundredfold harvest from us. And it's not for us, not for our glory. It's for your glory alone. For the sake of your steadfast love, and your faithfulness to us in Jesus. Would you, through this word, speak to us and give us those ears to hear? Give to us your Holy Spirit, for we cannot help ourselves. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his sake, amen. Begin with an obvious question. What place does the Bible have in your everyday life. 
What place, what priority does the Bible have in your everyday life? You know what's sad? That we even have to ask that question. The Bible is the one word of the one true God revealing to us the one way of salvation. We spent our last couple Sundays over our Christmas season in John chapter 1 rejoicing that it's true we may know God. The Bible is how. And there is no other way. It is through this written word that we come to know God through His Son, by His Spirit. There is no other way to know God. Don't let anything keep you from this book. Now, as I prayed a moment ago, it's, it's good to be in this passage because we always pray according to these words. I don't know if there's a, a passage that I reference in my prayers more often than this. Maybe something from Romans 8 about if He gave us His Son, surely with Him He will give us all things. But we always bring up this prayer or this, this, this parable in our prayers asking that the Lord would, would make our hearts this good ground to receive His Word and to bear fruit. So this, this passage is always a timely word no matter the occasion. But you'd probably agree with me that now, as we're wrapping up another year of following Jesus together, to, to look back at 2015 and our relationship to the Bible, this, this passage is very fitting. And it's very fitting because we're on the verge of another year of new things and, and following Jesus Christ together. So this passage, again, is very fitting for us. Let's begin in verses 1 to 3. It says that Jesus went through every size settlement in Galilee, proclaiming and bringing to the people the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. Wherever he went, we are told that these 12, the 12, the disciples went with him, and also certain women that he had healed. In fact, it says... These, it mentions these three, and many others were with him constantly following him as his disciples. Of course, it was men who were the twelve, but there were many women following Jesus faithfully. And it's really interesting to think about. You know, uh, Jesus was training these twelve, and these women, these three women, amongst others, were sustaining them. Jesus was training the twelve, and the women were sustaining them, providing for them out of their means. These women that are mentioned here in verses 2 and 3 are from all walks of life. We have Mary, called Magdalene, which means she was from Magdala, which was in Galilee. It says that at one time she had been completely possessed by demons, which is what is meant when it says from her seven demons had gone out. She had been completely possessed. She had been without hope. There was Joanna, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, who was a wife of one of Herod's inside men. And so this, uh, this passage, just this little description, is, is powerful in itself because it shows to us that no one, not those who had been completely overtaken by hell, and not those who were linked to wicked Herod. No one was outside the reach of the word of life. 
Jesus had been traversing Galilee back and forth in every settlement. And now at this time, after so many displays of power in his miracles and so much display of power in his proclamation of the kingdom, there were all kinds of people gathering themselves to him from every place. And on this specific day, it says a great crowd in verse 4 was gathering and people from town after town came to him. And so he told them, it says, a parable. What is a parable? This is something, this is a familiar term to us and um, one of Jesus' primary methods of teaching. A parable is a simple story that is loaded with deeper meaning. In parables, Jesus uses the everyday to reveal the eternal. Jesus is taking from common scenes of life to reveal the things that are unseen. Some have called parables earthly stories with heavenly meaning. I think that's a basic and very good, helpful definition. Easy way to remember what they are. Earthly stories with heavenly meaning. And yet, there's something about them that is not simple or basic at all. You see, as Jesus gives these spiritual truths, because they come undercover in the form of a story, it is very possible that the spiritual truths, the mysteries of the kingdom, go undetected or ignored, depending on the heart that hears them. And this is what the parable is, beginning in verse 5 and following. We're not going to take the time to read it again. He says that a farmer goes out to sow his seed. He has a bag of seed that's slung over his shoulder. He reaches in and the pace of his casting out the seed matches his walking pace as he makes his way across the field. Jesus says that seed falls on two types of ground. Good ground and bad ground. And then he further divides that bad ground, the bad soil, into three kinds. There is seed that he says falls along the traveler's footpath. It seemed like, according to the commentators at least, every farmer's field had a footpath for travelers making its way through. And so this was not an uncommon thing by any stretch for some of the seed to fall along this hardened path. It would be either trampled underfoot there or the birds would snatch it up before it could do anything. Some seed falls on a shallow layer of soil that just barely covers the limestone underneath. And so that seed germinates quickly, but there's no depth where it can have an established root system. So it can't get any moisture, and it burns up, it withers under the hot Palestinian sun. There is a third kind of bad ground, that thorny ground. It's a ground, the soil that's infested with thorns that take up the ground and, and hog all of the moisture for themselves. So when the, the seed springs up, the thorn chokes out the little seed's life. And then finally... He says that some of the seed falls on that rich, fertile ground where the seed springs up and it bears just an incredible 
hundredfold crop. And at the end of verse 8, it says, Jesus called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 9 and 10, we have the disciples going to Jesus and asking him what this, the meaning of this parable is. And here in verse 10, Jesus reveals one of the key purposes for the parables. Let's read this again. He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. There is a dual purpose to these parables. Jesus uses them to reveal truth to some and to conceal truth from others. The parables are going to actually shrink the crowds. An immense gathering has appeared before Jesus on this day and unexpectedly, this is very, not our way of doing things, very un pragmatic, I guess you could say. Jesus uses a parable to shrink the crowds. That's one of the purposes of the parables, to conceal the truth. So he shrinks the crowds with this parable, but he grows those who remain. He says that the things that he revealed in parables were secrets of the kingdom of God. I don't know if uh, secrets is really the, the best translation of this word that often gets translated mysteries of the kingdom. When we are talking about secrets or mysteries of the kingdom, we're, we're not saying that um, these this kingdom of God is, is filled with riddles and only known by riddles that only a select few elite can co- comprehend. That, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about mysteries. We're talking about the things of God that no man would ever understand or ever comprehend unless God reveals them. So the parables were given as a reward for those who were genuinely seeking the glory of God and Jesus. And they were judgment for those who were self-seeking, the self-righteous or the merely curious. The Jesus seekers saw greater glory through the parables, because they were given more additional insight into Christ and his kingdom. But those who were self-seeking, because these truths were given in this undercover form, in the form of a story, they dismissed them. They ignored them. They brushed them off. And so they became more close-minded, more short-sighted, and more hard-hearted. And that was the intent of the parables. Now the parable is this. Jesus says that the seed is the Word of God. Again, it's really landing, the seed of the Word of God is really landing on only two kinds of hearts. The one kind, the bad kind, is broken down into three parts. And this is so helpful for us. Jesus could have talked of simply bad ground in general and and good soil. But he breaks it down for us so that we can look into our own hearts and be careful to measure ourselves against what he says. In verse 12, we have 
the, uh, the first kind. He says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. This is the seed that has fallen on the, the traveler's footpath that is trampled underfoot or the birds devour. He says, this is the person with the hard heart. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody like this who has the hard heart, who has no sense of conviction whatsoever? I've seen this come out myself in different ways. I've preached the glories of Christ to some who are completely disengaged. And I'm not talking about people who might not have the capacity, such as a, a child, to understand or whatever. I'm talking about someone who has the capacity to understand the plain clarity of Scripture, but is completely disengaged, doesn't hear a thing that I'm saying, and doesn't care to understand a thing that I'm saying. That's one way that I've seen these hard hearts. I've also seen people who have been completely disgusted at what I say when I have preached the glories of Christ. And this doesn't happen on Sunday mornings. This has often happened, though, when I've preached a a public funeral and have had many unbelievers in the crowd. I've seen disgust and contempt in, in the form of scowls and anger on people's faces to hear of the exclusivity of Jesus and the judgment of hell for our unbelief. And I've seen the hardened heart come out in in the face, reflected in the face of dying people who still sense no need whatsoever for Christ. What is going on? Their hearts are hard. The Bible to them is information like any other information. And there's a lot of information just to toss aside, like it had come from an unworthy source. The Bible is just words on a page. The glories of Christ have no penetration into their hearts whatsoever. So these people, they don't understand what is the preacher fussing about? Why this earnestness? They don't get it because they don't get the glories of Christ. No understanding, no no feel for the weight and the magnitude, and the glory of the Word of God as it reveals Jesus. Does your heart still stir at the voice of your Savior? Does your heart still stir when you hear the Word of Christ? When you hear Jesus' claims to glory and His promises of glory? If you don't feel conviction from the Word of God, if you never feel this, it is because the devil, it's the devil snatching up the seed of the Word of God before it may penetrate our hearts. And so the hard-hearted go on their way in complete unbelief. That doesn't mean that the hard-hearted can blame the devil for their hard-heartedness because they don't want it any other way. Verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. 
Unlike the hard-hearted individual, this person has an immediate and eager reception to the Bible. They're glad to take it in. They have this heightened sensitivity to the, the truth dropping onto their hearts. And so they embrace the Word and they run with the Word and they begin with so much zeal and so much promise. But they do not last. They do not last because there's coming a time of testing. And that time of testing is coming for every single one of us. But those who have shallow hearts have not heeded the admonition of Peter who said, don't be surprised by the fiery suffering that is coming to you. But they are surprised by the fiery trial that comes on them to test them. And they have no joy like Jesus set before them by which they can endure the struggle of the cross. What happened? What was wrong in them? What was wrong at the end was actually wrong in the beginning. The glories of Christ weren't deep in them. All that knowledge that they seemed to have of the Word remained on the surface. That's what was wrong. Their hearts were shallow. In verse 14 it says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. The shallow heart has been turned off of Christ by pain, which is a passing thing. This person who has this infested heart is turned off by other other passing things. Things like daily pressures and the pleasures of life. Those things turn off the infested heart from Christ. This person also, just like the shallow heart, they might get consumed with the Bible for a while. They might have even, they might have a zeal for preaching. They might get a thrill out of the preaching of the Word of God. You know, the, the whole novelty of new things and new deep things just grabs onto them. But the thrill of the Word lasts only as long as the newness. And then there will come along in time another thing, another new thing, a, a, a pressing thing. And Jesus to them will be the passing thing. But in truth, it's they who will pass away without fruit. And I think this is for us, probably of for us as a congregation, of those three types of bad ground. This will be our greatest struggle. It's going to be the daily pressures of life, the things that make our schedules hectic, that can choke out the Word of God from reaching full maturity and fruit-bearing in our lives. It's going to be the pleasures of life because we, we are inundated constantly with entertainment or the advertisement for entertainment. And it can consume us and choke out the Word of God from reaching maturity and bearing fruit. Finally, in verse 15, Jesus says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. 
These are those who hear the word of God readily. But the differences between them and the others before are that they obey enduringly. Not only do they hear the word of God readily, but they obey it enduringly. You see, the shallow heart and the infested heart may seem to hold so much promise, but all of that is just for a while. That's not who they truly are. So in that sense, their hearts are dishonest because this is not who they are. There's a lot of flash and there's a lot of thunder about them, but it's all noise. Their hearts are dishonest. But those, it says, who bear fruit with patience are honest. And I I think this is just, uh, this is encouraging to us. Because we might not have any of the presence about us or any of the noise or the flash or the, you know, the whole X factor kind of thing that people are looking for, any of the charisma, anything special, noticeable that will put us out there, that would get us our name in lights. There's nothing about that in this person. Nothing flashy in them. But they have honest hearts. They know who they are. And these people know how desperately they need Jesus Christ. So they hold the word of God fast. They're like Peter, right? In John 6, after the throngs leave Jesus because he has spoken difficult words, Jesus said to his disciples, are you also going to go away? Peter said, go away? Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the honest and good heart that holds fast to the word of God and bears the hundredfold crop. We say, where else will we go? Where else are we going to go for life? It's not found in the entertainment of the world. It's not found in accomplishments in my business and, and you know, making my way up the, the career ladder. Life is not found in, in entertainment and in the pleasures of this world. Where else will I go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. So these people, they're steady. You know, many come and many go. But these people are a fixed presence amongst the people of God. Steady, loyal, seeming just to plod along. But over the course of their lifetime, be that life short or long, they produce an abundant harvest for the kingdom. And I know that's hard to believe for those who think of themselves rightly, that we are so small. But this is what Jesus says. That for His name, not ours, His glory, not ours, we produce through our lives the hundredfold crop. What place of priority does the Bible have in your life? I want to approach that question and what I'm hoping, what I'm praying for is that By this message, the Word of God will return to its rightful place of priority in your everyday life.
I'm using every day. That's an important word there. Because if I just say life, you could, yeah, the Bible's important in my life. It's, you know, it's the Word of God. It's how I'm saved. But I'm saying our everyday lives. The Word of God must return to its rightful place of uppermost priority. And I, I want to, um, uh, hope to achieve that goal just from a, a slightly different angle now. Taking from Luke 8 verses 1 and 15, but further out into the, the scope of this book and really even from the scriptures, I, there's something I want to share with you that I, I really want you to understand. So I know we're just moving past 12 now and are in our last 15 minutes or so, but I, I, wanna, I want to call your attention to the Word of God. Chapter 7, which we have just finished, we were in it a few weeks ago, was very clear. It says that Jesus is a prophet. You don't have to turn there. Jesus is a prophet and more than. He is superior to Elisha, superior to Elijah, and superior to John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets. Because at his word, he heals the sick, Though they're distant, he raises men, though they're dead, and he forgives sinners that everyone else damns. These people are past all help and all hope, but at the word of Jesus Christ, they are delivered. We see this all throughout the narrative of Luke. Nothing resists the authority of Jesus' word. We've said it over and over again, right? And then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, Jesus tells us that people resist his word all the time. All the time. So what is going on here? How do we explain this? There are really two kinds of words in Jesus. Okay, First, there is the sovereign word that he decrees that no one and nothing ever resists. So we speak of the astonishing authority of Jesus' word. He speaks and stuff happens. He speaks and what he says does. This is the word of the sovereign Lord that never comes back to him empty-handed, but accomplishes everything that he purposes and succeeds for everything that he sends it. This is the word that ordered, and this is the word that sustains the creation, setting the bounds of the ocean, and commanding the morning, to use terminology from the book of Job. And we see this, this sovereign word in Jesus, where he rebukes the demon and rebukes the fever, where he calls the fish and cleanses the leper, where he raises the paralytic and he raises the corpse. Nothing resists his sovereign decree. But Jesus speaks another kind of word also. So there is his decree, his sovereign decree. And then there is this other word. It is the gospel of the kingdom that he declares. And that's how I'm going to use it as his decree and his declaration. The gospel of the kingdom that he declares, which people choose either to believe or disbelieve to embrace or to suppress, to obey or disobey. 
Now here's the thing that I want you to understand, which is so crucial. And I'll get to the practical ramifications for this in a moment. Okay, but listen. I'm going to say it in kind of an abstract way first and then in a clear way. The first word anticipates and attends the second word. And the second word fulfills the first. Now I'll say it more simply. God uses the word that he declares as his means to accomplish the ends that he has decreed. God uses the word he declares in space and time to accomplish, as his means, to accomplish the ends that he has decreed. And when in God's time, in due time, these two words meet, the Bible is going to fall like a hammer upon your heart. Or fall like salve upon your wounds to convict or to comfort. When in time and space these two words meet and God uses the declaration of the Bible to fulfill his decree for his people, that's when new creation happens. That's when there is spiritual resurrection, revival, faith, repentance, renewal, sanctification, conformity to God's Son. When these two words meet, when God uses the word declared as the means to accomplish the ends he has decreed for us. So I'd like you to turn quickly to Romans 8. And I, because I want you to see these two words in one verse, Romans 8 verse 30. In Romans 8 verse 30, Paul wrote, Those whom God predestined, he also called. So here, the first word is God's decree spoken for us in eternity in which he predestined us. To what? Well, that's back in verse 29. That's God's decree in which he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. The second word that Paul speaks of in verse 30 is the declaration of the gospel of Jesus by which we are called to Christ in the here and now. So one word was spoken in eternity past, the word of predestination, his decree, and the other is spoken in time and space, the call of the gospel through the preaching of God's word. And for those who are predestined, the declaration of the gospel will be in due time that effectual calling, that irresistible word that falls like a divine hammer upon our hearts, that breaks all of our resistance. We're talking about the divine summons of God that will break the walls of our proud Jericho hearts 
so that the Word of God, the, the glory of God, like light, comes piercing through. And for the first time, we are wakened to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we drop our guns and gladly surrender. When these two words meet, God's decree and the declaration of the gospel. And so here we have it. The first word, his decree, attends the second, and the second fulfills the first. I want to give another illustration, a historic illustration. I won't have you turn there. You can if you want, I guess. Acts 13, 48. In Acts 13, we find the Apostle Paul preaching with his missionary team in Antioch. And he's preaching to the Jews at first for a couple of weeks. And he's giving to them what he calls the word of the Lord. But the Jews there reject the word of the Lord. And so Paul says, just as God has promised, we are now turning with the word of the Lord to the Gentiles. And it says in Acts 13, verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Do you see what's happening here? We have two words. The word of God's decree, appointing so many to eternal life, attending the second word, the word of the Lord declared in the gospel of Jesus in space and time, and that second word, fulfilling the first, so that all who were appointed to eternal life believed. The secret decree of God that we cannot hear attends to the gospel word that we do hear, and the word declared to us fulfills the word decreed for us. Again, God's word declared to us is the means that he uses to accomplish the ends he has decreed. And what has he decreed for his people? He has decreed life for us. He has decreed that his elect will live, will rise, will know their God and grow, bearing fruit with patience. This is what God has decreed. How does it happen? Through what he declares. Do you realize the practical ramification? The practical ramification for your life is that it is spiritual lunacy. Once you know this, it is spiritual lunacy for us to leave our Bibles on the floorboard of our cars where they fell last Sunday. It is spiritual lunacy for us to go our weeks without coming back into the Word and meditating upon what God declares. Because it's through this Word that we live. It is through this Word that we grow into conformity with Christ as His decree has predestined us. And it is crazy for us if we can help it and we don't attend to the preaching of the Word of God. Because it's through the declaration of of his word, that his decrees 
are fulfilled. This is huge. We have to be convinced of this, or we will, we will commit all of that spiritual insanity on a regular basis and think it's no big deal and think, yeah, I live, I'm growing, I'm fine, I'm good. We're not good. We abound spiritually when we hold fast to the word. And you know how it is. We can try to deny it, but you know it's true that our hearts wither. Our hearts grow so dull, so quick, when we don't hold fast to the word. How has 2015 been? When you look back on your relationship to the Bible this past year, how has 2015 been? And I hope that there are some among us who can say 2015 has been the best yet in my relationship to the Word of God. But I know that we make our resolutions, which are good. I think it's good to make resolutions at the beginning of the year, to make a plan. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But we know we all stumble in many ways, many days. But listen, it was and it remains the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And where the word of the gospel is, you know, in that that good and honest heart, the word of the gospel doesn't stop speaking. Jesus is constantly calling to us by his word. So if you consider yourself now and evaluate yourself and measure your year and your relationship to the Bible, you might say, you know, I feel absolutely spiritually mired, bogged down. But Jesus does not stop speaking. This word is not just what was said. This is what he says, and he is calling to you, and he is calling to me. He is looking to us. Let us look to him. He is clinging to us. Our hold on Christ, our hold fastness, so to speak, feels like it's so weak and we are losing our grip. But his grip on us doesn't slip a fraction. He is clinging to you. So cling back. He will deliver from that spiritual mire and that bog all of those who look to him in faith, who hold fast to him through his word. You were born again. I had so much more to to give you this morning, but I, I would be remiss to leave this out. You were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and the glory and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is how we live. This is how we were born again. And this is how we are kept until glory. Being conformed to Jesus through the word preached to us. So we're on the verge of a new year, 2016. And now is the time to make a plan for how we are going to search this Word of God and meditate upon this Word of God that is declared to us. Make a plan. 
In the next day or so, I'll put on our private and public uh, Facebook pages a link, maybe a couple links to a bunch of Bible reading plans. If you don't have one already, find the one that suits you. I'll put probably some heavy ones, like 10 chapter a day ones, they're out there, and then some that are a nicer pace. There's one I saw recently that is nine chapters a week up thereabouts, and it'll take you through the Bible, uh, the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice over three years, and it works out to about nine chapters a week. Anyway, what I think would be wonderful and very helpful to you and to me is that we make these plans and share it with a brother or sister in Christ in this church family who can help us and encourage us graciously. And when we fail, again, encourage us graciously. And maybe even a better idea would be to make the plan with, not just make the plan and then share it, but make the plan with the brother and sister in Christ to do this together and to encourage one another as we go, as we follow Jesus Christ and bear fruit together in this year. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. Father, we ask your help. We need you. I thank you, Father, that what you declared, you declare. What was written stands written. This is what you say to us. I pray, Father, that we would listen closely this year to you speaking in your word. And I thank you, Father, that what we read is good news because we know as we measure our relationship to your word and and thus to you, we all feel the guilt of many failures and many stumbles in many ways. So I thank you, Father, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your Son who came and lived for us perfectly and for us perfectly died to bear in himself our failures and our sins. I thank you, Father, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And I pray, Father, that this truth would compel us all the more to seek your face and to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.